Hello and welcome to Big Feels at Work. Today we're going to talk about collective well-being. Welcome, Gareth Edwards. Hey, Graham. Hey, folks. So I was reading Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections, recently, uh, which some of you may well have heard of. It's a, a book came out two or three years ago, journalist and kind of uh, TED Talk type dude, Johan Hari from the UK, wrote this book about depression in the kind of headline version, busting some of the myths around depression. So kind of really digging into this chemical imbalance theory and kind of looking at all the ways that it's not not all that science-based um, and some of the implications of that. I kind of, it was one of those books I read and kind of got halfway through and never finished because a lot of it was stuff I just already knew. But I picked it up the other day randomly off my bookshelf and um, there's this whole second half of the book where he really digs into the, the so what. Mm-hmm. So like if <laughs> if the simple story we tell about depression isn't isn't all that true or all that useful for, for many people, what do we do? And a lot of where he goes in the second half of the book is collective approaches to well-being and recovery. He talks about this one piece of research that I, I found quite fascinating, which is that if you live in a, a very individualistic society, like his example is the US, but we could say Australia, New Zealand, you know, any of these kind of Western countries that are, have the, you know, the, the focus on the individual as the central unit of society. Mm. The research question was what happens when you try and be happy? Like if you're having a shit time, what happens when you, you kind of do all the things that you're supposed to do and you set your cap to being happy? Does it make a difference? And what they found was a surprising thing, which is that in the US, an in individualistic culture, that didn't help. Trying to be happy didn't, didn't make you any happier. But in more collectivist societies, such as Asian countries and Russia, it did help. So when you started to try and be happier, you did get happier. And the researchers' kind of theory on this was in those collectivist societies or more collectivist societies, your definition of trying to be happier was trying to make other people happier. Mm. Whereas in the US, or I would say the same is true here in Australia, if I think how am I going to make myself happier, it is focused on me. It's all about me. Um. And so the, the theory from this research and where he kind of teases it out in the book is happiness kind of has to be a collective effort. Hmm. So that's the starting point. That's a kind of opening statement. Where I want to go is how do we kind of, you know, even if some of that feels pretty common sense and almost kind of, you know, resonates in our own lives, how do we actually act on that? in our jobs, in the mental health system, where right from the moment someone comes to ask for help, the focus is on the individual. The focus of the treatment, the focus of the diagnosis, so that both our definition of the problem and our general approach to the solution is, is so squarely focused on the individual. And yet we know so much of well-being comes from the collective. How do we make sense of that? I, I feel you pose a question to which you have an answer. <laughs> I, I don't know that I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I do either because we're both, we're both from these cultures that we label 
individualistic. But here's the thing. There is no such thing as an individualistic culture. Go on. Like, sure, we've got this weird blip of the last, I don't know, two, three, four hundred years of, of, of uh, yeah, this atomized view of ourself. Mm. But I think it's a blip. We all come from collectivist cultures. Mm. We just we just haven't uh, you know haven't been born in one you know at this time, and I think yeah. one of the one of my observations of being here in New Zealand, where um, Tonga to Fenua, Maori uh, people of the land, the influence of being around a culture that isn't individualistic and atomized has been profound mm. in terms of my own sense of where I'm from. Um, and just realizing that a big part of perhaps the challenge I face is that I've been told I'm from an individualistic culture when I'm not. Yeah. It just happens to be the thing I've been born into. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I've, I've thought a lot about how, you know, self-worth is a, is a team effort. Like, evolutionarily like that whole yeah. concept of of self-worth is 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 designed to keep us contributing to the tribe and kind of woven into the social fabric because that's what we need to survive but there's this version of it now that's kind of that we've inherited from as you say this sort of 3 or 400 years of 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 focusing more on the individual where that very natural, very useful desire to contribute gets kind of twisted around to an obsession on on whether you're contributing enough. And so it all becomes about you rather than about the collective. Yeah, I think it can do. I think it can be a very, it's a very strange area to, to play in because even the idea of there being a self... Hmm. You know, I wonder if part of what what we currently call mental illness, which arose in a similar time frame mm-hmm. around the enlightenment, around the focus on rationality, yep. this whole individualization of people, I wonder if that's created essentially a sort of inbuilt, um, I'm not going to say mental illness, an inbuilt angst and existentialism yep. that perhaps isn't there in collectivist cultures. It's really hard for me to even consider what a collectivist culture might feel like but i wonder if the idea from what i know from what i've you know shared with people from those cultures this idea of even a self is something (laughs) of a a reasonably contextualized phenomena yes yeah and um you know i don't know much about um harry's book but i do know the little that i do know is essentially it seems a lot of the answers lay in connections and I think that is something we can do. We can't really address. Oh, I think we can, but the opportunity is to really support people to reconnect with a collectivist under under culture, if you like, or context is, is probably a little hard, especially if people are struggling day to day. But we can definitely help people explore connections. And I would say, you know, our sort of our best hope in the mental health system that we both share this this passion for peer support in all its formats is based very much on the the connections and a shared a shared journey yeah so 
when I think back to my days as, as a support worker, which is how I started in mental health, well, how I started in mental health uh, is by going crazy, but <laughs> then I started working as a support worker. Um, it was funny because even in the place I worked, which was all peer run and everybody there from the CEO to every team member had lived experience, that question of, of how do you help people with their loneliness was still like this constant conundrum. Mm. You know, we, we could tell that disconnection and loneliness were so often the big problem, <laughs> but, but it still didn't mean we, we ha- had an answer, particularly because in that organization, you know, all the work was one-on-one. You know, how, how do you help someone get better friends? How do you help someone improve their family relationships when, when your square focus is on them and working with them? You can kind of nibble around the edges, right? But it's not like necessarily... Well, let's separate the two out. I think helping people get better friends is a whole category of difference from helping people with family relationships. <laughs> Those two are yeah, quite separate pools of activities. Mm. You know, that whole, you know, you choose your friends, you don't choose your family stuff. Um, I think I think one of the important things that you can kind of bring to the conversation is exactly where you've started this one. Mm. It's, you know, you're not lonely and isolated because you're weird or a freak or a bad person. Yeah. You're lonely and isolated because our society has been structured this way and lots of people feel that loneliness and isolation. I think the consequence for people who've got some range, mm. like we mm. have is you know obviously can be quite harrowing but the actual phenomenon itself is is yeah it's a it's an outgrowth of the way we've structured things so even knowing that even knowing that it's essentially not your fault yes that you're lonely and isolated is a huge relief because often with that lonely and isolation it's about you know am i performing well mm. as a family member or friend so there's something there about so so you mentioned peer support as kind of having a little extra card up the sleeve in a way mm. and it's not it's not that you because in the system as a peer worker it's still there's all these things in place that mean that that the relationship you have with the people you're working with is still a very mediated relationship yeah right like there's a million things reminding you this this isn't this isn't a friendship and, and everyone's always very clear on that as if it's very important to not be too friendly um so it's, so it's not that you can really work on the loneliness directly necessarily, but what I think you can do in a peer role that you can't necessarily do in other roles is you can be honest about how fucking lonely you are. Yes. <laughs> you can kind of give a little bit of insight into, because that's where you, where you realize it's not just you. It's when you hear it from other people. And I do think it's interesting. I've been thinking about this recently, like any kind of peer-based uh, community take weight watchers for example mm. bunch of people coming together to uh, motivate one another on their diet i wonder if a, a, the, the the major appeal of that has nothing to do with what you're eating it's just the fact that you've found some fucking community around something you all struggle Definitely. with so it's like community through struggle is a very potent um, antidote to that to that kind of existential human loneliness, where you think you're the only one who finds life this hard, or you're the only one who finds eating this hard, or you're the only one who finds whatever it is. You know, insert 
thing you're struggling with that you find shameful, finding community through that very thing is quite a powerful experience. Just just as a regular Weight Watchers attender, it's, it's, it's finding eating not hard that is possible. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, I think you're absolutely spot on and, and very different from coming together over mm. something that's perhaps more joyful or positive. If you come together through struggle, you know, you, you arrive at the place, you know, and obviously online is, is, is big at the moment, but you arrive wherever it's happening. Yes. Knowing that everybody else is in a similar pickle. If you try and do something that's joyful based, then, the, you know, there's a real pressure there to kind of step up and be be joyful and positive and happy, which is definitely cool. But if you're struggling, meeting others who are struggling, it's just such yes. a relief on on, on more yeah. than one level. So one, it's like I'm not alone with this struggle and it's, it's not just me who's finding it difficult, but you're also by default with people who are in a similar situation to have some commonality. I have seen this um, even even recent years. I think I've I've had more to do with peer group and group setting um, kind of offerings. I've evaluated a bunch of mm. peer groups through community health, for instance, which is quite an interesting part of the system to find peer support. Rather, peer support's often sort of buried once you've tried every other thing. And I can see some more examples recently of it being one of the early things you get offered, and sitting in on some of these peer groups and talking to them about the experience. I've realized a pretty obvious thing, but just how profound that can be for all the reasons we're describing. Mm. But what's funny is that I think for a number of years, particularly when I was a support worker, I sort of had this weird bias that somehow one-on-one was better. And, and where I've come to with a bit of, um, time and distance is I think that was coming from a place of wanting to be seen as legitimate. Yeah. Because all the legitimate professions are one-on-one. You know, like a psychologist is usually one-on-one and, a, you know, the, the psychiatrist is one-on-one. Well, I think they are now, yeah. I think in this current configuration, we, yeah, we, we emphasize the one-to-one. Plus, it reinforces that whole individualistic, atomized thing. It's like, I alone can be the, the yes i have the expertise whereas what what a group setting yeah. does and it doesn't have to be peer support it can be you know group psychology group whatever the group setting means yeah. if it's set up the right way you can attend as a participant and not just be the fuck up you also get an opportunity yeah. to offer your own learnings and offer your own insights and offer your own support exactly. so you get to play yeah. both roles um and so I've seen I've seen this done in peer spaces. I've seen this done really well in um, an addiction service where it was clinicians running it, and but but the whole they managed to run it in a way that they weren't the experts in the room. Yeah, you know we're all here bringing something. You know we're bringing different things, but we're all here bringing something. So I just thought it was funny, kind of reflecting on that um, stigma I had, or like you know this idea I had that no, I. I, I'm going to be a, a, an individual one-on-one practitioner, which is <laughs> kind of bullshit. Yeah, but it's also like to, to do group stuff, particularly as a younger person, you have got to step out of a lot of comfort. You know, there's a lot to try, there's a lot to move through to feel comfortable in a group because we're not, we're sort of not built for it anymore. We're sort of not, our cultures don't sort of reinforce that. Mm. I guess the other thing that I was going to say as you were talking, and, and it might be something that, you know, listeners can can bring to the work, I often find that 
you know, when we try and tackle this thing we call mental illness mm. head on, it's almost like grasping smoke. Mm. You know, it's it's just very hard to to tackle head on sometimes, but a way around it and a way to get those benefits of sort of group um, group support is to pick a different sort of topic. So I'll give you some examples. So certainly when I worked in um, alcohol rehab in a detox, you know, you'd have open support groups where people could just share how they're doing that day and do that beautiful co-learning and sharing, you know, between each other. But then when we did other groups, on the surface of it, they had a purpose. You know, it might be like, um, you know, looking at getting back to work or back to education or whatever. But it was just almost like a decoy to bring people together to share in the experience. Yeah. And so in, in the you know, in the book that I wrote, The Procrastinator's Guide to Killing Yourself, one of the things that I did in the phase called Stepping Forward is I went and um, joined a hearing impairment group. Mm. So I was with this group of people. I was the youngest by a good maybe 45 <laughs> years, <laughs> you know, and there was some real, real gorgeousness in that as well. But what it meant is I was going to a group because my ears were a bit wonky, not because I was depressed, anxious and, mm. and panicking. But I still managed to get that sense of community and connection, but not about this sort of big, scary thing that I couldn't really yes. face. And I wonder if that's the that's a way in. Because, I mean, maybe you feel the same. I'd be curious to know, but you get to a certain point in a, in a recovery journey and you're like, fucking <laughs> hell. I am more than just this little bag of symptoms, you know? Yeah. You know, it's not just about lowering my anxiety or managing my dark moods or whatever else. Like, sure, that's yes. going on. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff here that, yeah. you know. My, my, my most yeah. recent example of that... Um, so I've been doing this little experiment uh, with a, someone I met through Big Feels Club um, who was like a listener and a reader and then got in touch and we we made a couple of podcasts together, Amy, who, who's um, been on the main Big Feels Club podcast. And we were chatting back and forth about how we both want to meditate more. Well, actually, I sort of said I want to do that more and she was like, I... I'm terrible at meditating. So my ears pricked up and I was like, oh yeah, well, could we have some kind of experiment where we basically each do, each meditate every day for seven days and check in yeah. with each other afterwards. So it was a very simple experiment designed to be like, let's see if we can kind of motivate one another to do this. But the unexpected joy of it was, because it was really fun and we both meditated every day for seven days, which was a surprise. But the unexpected joy of it was like, the little added bit of texting, not only I did it, but here's what I noticed. Yeah. I mean, it was almost like, and how I said it to her was it's like someone else cared that I'd done it. Yeah. And it's not that she'd care if I didn't do it. It's just like yeah. someone else was like, ah. And so we were talking about it and her way of explaining it was like, if you're on holiday and you see something cool, you want someone with you so you can be like, hey, look at that cool thing. Yeah. And we don't get to do that with what happens in our own brains unless it's, hey, look at the scary thing. So there was something kind of unusual about um, just having a whole week where I could be like, ah, oh, I sat down and I noticed this feeling and I could tell someone and I didn't have to be like a support conversation. Yeah, because the context is always deficits. Yes. You know? 
And I, and I think we have, like certainly when I started in this in this sector, I think we've lost connection to, you know, the strengths-based thinking. Hmm. So rather than fix problems exclusively, like fine, fix a problem, that's all good. You've got to give as much weight and as much focus on, on growing the things that are good. Yep. And eventually, in my experience is you grow the things that are good, mm. they sort of eclipse the things that are challenging or difficult. So there's a kind of unintended, well, there's a kind of consequence of that that you don't have so much problems to fix. Yes. What it, what it made me wonder, this little experiment, I started thinking, what would this look like at scale? Like, how, how could, because, you know, Big Fields Club, as much as it's about, kind of on the one hand we wanted to make something that you'd want to engage in even if you didn't feel like shit so that's why it's fun it's funny it's cool you know all all those things it's it's not the kind of thing you'd only go to if you if you were really desperate but it's still mostly focused on the hard bits and so i was kind of curious from that experiment with amy of like how could we encourage people to forge those sorts of little they're not support relationships there's something else it's kind of like <laughs> creating a space to share the ride it feels like play it feels like play mm. you know mm. grown-up play yeah I and mean, i think you expressed it to me when you were telling me about it a wee while ago it's like you know there's an element that it feels like an art project, you know? Yes, it's big feels in general, a, yeah. Yeah, but even that specific, like, it's not about the meditation, it's not about supporting each other through a difficult time or a childhood trauma or whatever else. It's just like, what would this be like? Yeah. You know, and again, we spoke in a, an earlier episode about, you know, the joy of the experience in itself, not the ambition to achieve something. Hmm. I don't think either you or Amy went in there going, well, this will crap the whole meditation <laughs> I've got. She, she may have thought that. <laughs> but yeah. It's... I guess I guess the bit that perhaps you've walked past, because there, there is a version of that scale, Insight Timer. You can buddy up on Insight Timer and have can meditation you? chums. Yeah, okay. and you can message each other and say, oh, you know, I saw golden fields with a purple sunset and all the rest of it. And, yeah. you know, and you can sort of, you know, that accountability aspect to what you were doing, you can do that through Insight Timer. Mm. I think the bit that was golden there is that you two developed a conversation and a connection to mm. go back to, to Mr. Hardy. Yep. You developed your connection and then found the thing that was most playful and of interest to you two in that moment. That's exactly it. Yeah. So not, not the prescription of here's how to look after your brain, but just more the... And it was the fact that it was an experiment as well. So that I think your, your frame of an art project makes sense. And this goes back to something we talked about in an earlier episode of like, mm. we've lost the artsy spaces in mental health. Mm. You know, health doesn't want to fund that anymore. Mm. We've lost the play. We've lost the play. I- and do you remember when we did Big Feels in, uh, we did a, a meetup in Melbourne? Remember mm. those days when you could sit next to somebody? And, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember when we when we said, oh, let's do a, a live, let's do a meetup and and see how it goes. And as soon as, as soon as we created the enthusiasm for it, we then all went into separate spaces of like, well, it should be like this because that's how I've seen other live events, so it could be like this. And we sort of looked for models and our reflection, or my reflection for sure, 
when we finished it, it was like when we let go of what we thought it should be, mm. it was amazing. Yeah. So we had 80 odd people turn up to a a bar in Melbourne and talk about feelings. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it felt very playful. Yeah. Once we let go of the structure, you know, it became very playful. And, and I think people, yeah, like you say, like even though we're talking about, you know, tough stuff and emotional stuff and, and what have you, there was a lot of fun involved in that event. There was a lot of playfulness and joy, even though the, the topic was, you know, on the surface of it, yeah, challenging or, or harrowing. So so bringing this back to our listeners and, and, you know, that old funnel we try and do at the end of the episodes of how you can kind of implement or experiment, maybe is a better word in this space, in your role. I I wonder if we've got the uh, the opportunity here to, to uh, walk our talk. Go on. I'd be really curious what people have found has enabled them to explore the idea of disconnect or loneliness and isolation with people they work with. Hmm. And maybe they could share with us some of the, some of the experiences they've had trying to, yeah, trying to be there for somebody in that situation in a professional role, yeah, peer or otherwise. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe maybe that's something we we share back to the, the Big Fields at Work tribe and do a bit of co-learning and a bit of sort of asynchronous group work ourselves. Yeah, I like that. So if you'd like to share on that topic, so I guess the question is, yeah, what what have you found is kind of nourishing and useful for people on this on this question of loneliness and connection? Uh, send that through to hello at bigfields.club. And let us know. And I'd, I'd have a wide scope, like, sure, bring to bear your work experiences, but also stuff in your own lives, in your personal lives. Because I think the beauty of what we're, we're part of here with Big Feels is sort of blurring this boundary between, you know, the role and the people. Hmm. And I think that could be the greatest gift of peer support with a big P or a little P or whatever. Hmm. It's that we're humanizing a service that's become incredibly dehumanized, but is all about humanity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I was just going to add, and if you're finding that your job is quite tiring, that that might be why. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I like that. Cool. All right. Uh, we might leave this one there. Okay, cool. Thank you, Gareth.